Now, I just know somebody's wondering, Pastor, you said uh, we were not going to continue any more in Romans. We we're going to be back in James. I understand that. I was grappling with it a little this week. And for a multiplicity of reasons, it seemed best. It's really hard to end on a Romans 7 note, even with a little bit of a review. And so I thought it would be at least beneficial to just survey uh, once again the contents of Romans 8. We're not going to go in depth. We're just going to touch on the main points of the chapter. I hope it will be helpful. And again, I hope it will spur a further study and be an encouragement. Again, uh, we, I said it multiple times going through Romans 7. God's intent is not to run us into the mud and leave us there. In fact, it's not to run us into the mud at all. It's actually a freeing thing to understand the nature of the enemy that we fight that is still within us. I dare say that our flesh is our worst enemy. And I also dare say sometimes Christians almost practically deny it's as bad as it is. We feel guilty that I'm tempted or that I'm fighting this battle at all. And it ought to be a great encouragement that God had Paul, of all people, come to this crisis as a believer. Why did he come to the crisis? He wanted to please God. He wanted to please God. Some of you know something about that crisis. If you could care less about what God thought, none of, none of Romans 7 would bother you. But if you do care, uh, you want to be pure, not just in the externals as some sort of modern-day Pharisee, but you want to be pure in here. You want to worship God not just in truth, but in spirit. And of course, Romans 7 sets the stage for this glorious victory note that prevails through Romans 8. I was looking through notes and I found it interesting. Uh, the last time we surveyed this chapter, do you know what was going on? A political outsider, a brash billionaire by the name of Donald Trump swore he would drain the swamp and shock the world by securing the Republican nomination for president. That was exactly four years ago when we surveyed this passage. And what an interesting four years it's been, hasn't it? Interesting in a lot of ways. Uh, by the way, let me, let me digress to what I was just saying too. I don't even know if we'll be in James next week. We'll be somewhere in the Scriptures. There's another passage that's just knocking on the door of the mind and soul. We might be there. I can tell you what it is in case we're not there. We'll be somewhere, alright? In the Scriptures. God's Word is amazing. But if you pay attention, I hope... And by the way, if you are a person who's given to despondency these days, I would recommend a fast from the news. <laughs> I'm not saying don't know what's going on, but if it's getting you in the dumps consistently, I would suggest raise this appetite and put that one down for a little bit. Because this is going to give you hope. 
Not even Fox News is going to give you hope. They're going to give you a lot of rage at frustrating things, but they really don't have any foundational answers. Do I need to remind us there is no party of godliness in American politics? There's one that's more conservative. But is it godly? Not as a whole. We see stresses and strains of a very, very uncertain world. Again, it was four years ago. We were looking at the very real possibility of both major party candidates facing indictment right around the election. What a strange set of circumstances that was at the time. But what's going on now? We still have the same growing discontent. We still have the same anti-establishment sentiments. We have major U.S. cities with nightly riots. In fact, Portland, most of you know, is about to cross the threshold of 100 straight nights. We have angry mobs of professing Americans walking through major city streets on our soil chanting, Death to America! We have at least one increasingly communist state on the West Coast releasing criminals and threatening to jail pastors. And then you have these movements that really are not accomplishing anything like what they say. Please don't misunderstand me on this. I believe black lives matter because I believe all lives matter. I have had dear friends of about every ethnicity under the sun. I don't care what color a person's skin is. I care about the person inside the skin. But that movement has very little to do with black lives. And it has a whole lot to do with anarchy and chaos. If you cared so much about black lives, why are you not decrying the organization slaughtering the unborn black lives by the millions? Let's be consistent. And then, of course, you've got the media, which functions as a puppet of the leftist agenda and Pied Piper of the ignorant masses with their selective emphasis and all sorts of other things could be named. But what does this all boil down to, though, really? It brings us back to basic biblical certainties, or at least it should. What does it remind us of? Well, first of all, that the gospel of Christ is the only hope for all mankind. That's it. It's change within sinful hearts that leads to change without. Let me ask you a question. Let's say this election. Let's say there's a landslide of red. House, Senate, Presidency. I'm not saying I don't want that. I actually do, if I had to pick. Would that make our country godly? No, it wouldn't. Because the fundamental rebellion against God would still remain. The second thing that reminds us of is that there are no certainties in this present world, are there? There's no foundations for us here in this earth. There's 
Nothing here that cannot be shaken. Growing up in Alaska, one of the icons of tourists that they want to see, the irony is the mountain hides itself during most of tourist season. Uh, Mount McKinley or Denali, they keep changing the name. I'm not sure what the politically correct title is these days. It's one of those two or both. But you can see that thing from a long way away. It's, ma it's majestic. One of the rivers I used to fish, uh, in fact, when you knew on a real clear day, you descended the one hill into the town of Willow and poof, there was the mountain. And it was a long way away. What's going to happen to that mountain? <laughs> Leveled. Think of all the things your eyes have seen in life. There's not one thing your eyes have ever seen that's not going to burn. It's all going up in flames if it even lasts that long. Now we look for the time when the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And I made this statement four years ago. I'll make it again more vehemently. We may be entering a phase in American history when Romans 8, especially the end of the chapter, becomes more precious to the real people of God than it ever has before on U.S. soil. There's been conflict and uncertainty. There's still some Americans alive who remember that day that will live in infamy which drug us into World War II. And there was the real possibility that we're facing enemies we couldn't overcome with sheer determination and firepower, but most Americans were at least agreed on who the physical enemy was. It was ruthless, godless dictators from across the world that would take away our national sovereignty and liberties. But we still have a world war raging, but the media has little to say about it. Because it's not a blitzkrieg of tanks and artillery. It's an all-out blitzkrieg of satanic agendas, of leftist and liberal ideas, of legislation from judicial benches, of redefinition of historically understood terms. It's the trampling of individual freedoms for the sake of political correctness. It's the attempt to crack down on any and all who refuse to think and speak like the ungodly masses and the growing power of the states. This is becoming the age of groupthink, of movies and people and movements that are woke, of safe spaces on college campuses. So all of our little snowflakes can have a place where their almighty opinion won't be challenged so they don't have to have a meltdown on social media. It's not so clear who the real enemy is anymore, is it? Well, biblically, though, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But to a growing segment of this country, who's the enemy? It's the real Bible-believing Christian. Because they're the ones who are the hate mongers and the absolutists and the bigots and the misogynists and the homophobes. They're the ones that won't mix into the blender of what they call unity. They're the ones that are standing in the way of the utopian Tower of Babel that the globalists are trying to desperately create. 
But let me remind you that the book of Romans was also written by a man labeled an enemy of the state for many of the same reasons. But interestingly enough, you see this prevailing note of triumph throughout the chapter, but you see it's not the result of some major victory in the courtroom. A poll isn't exuberant because a certain political party won an election. He's not victorious because of the booming economy. He's not confident because of the new multi-purpose facility that the church in Rome recently completed debt-free. These words were penned by a man who bore in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ in an empire where each citizen was required, at least outwardly, to honor Caesar as some sort of deity. A global empire where Christians were fed to wild animals as a spectator sport. And it was written to a group of believers huddled in the filthy capital city, surrounded by some four million heathen idolaters who were covering their spiritual bankruptcy with education and culture and amusement and wealth and refinement. Oh yes, and even religion. And the reason this victory song is so powerful and timeless is because it draws our attention away from the shifting sands of mankind's affairs and away from our own feeble attempts at conquering our indwelling fleshly nature. It reminds me of Psalm 121. The psalmist says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. Where are you looking for help? Hmm? Now you hear the constant drumming of a world going mad, but what are you lifting your eyes to? Rush Limbaugh? Or Jesus Christ? This chapter is widely regarded as the high watermark of the entire book of Romans and maybe even the greatest chapter for the Christian in the New Testament. That's subjective, I get it. One well-known German commentator remarked, if the Holy Scriptures was a ring and the epistle of Romans is the precious stone, then chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. I tend to agree with those sentiments, which is why it was hard to at least skip a, a panorama of the chapter. Another has commented, we begin the chapter with no condemnation, we close it with no separation, and in between all things work together for good to them that love God. So this morning we're just going to take an in, a brief survey to touch the major contents, and again we'll ramp up to it by looking at some things from the book as a whole, because I think it helps us understand where Romans 8 is coming from. I hope as you read through the book of Romans, one thing you're increasingly impressed with is Paul's spiritual logic. And not all logic is bad. Typically, it's based on human wisdom. That is bad. But logic based on eternal realities is a wonderful thing. And Paul was a very, very spiritually logical person, a brilliant mind at applying eternal truth. Someone has said, if you don't find Paul logical, you're not understanding him correctly. <laughs> so there's these successive building blocks aimed at bringing us to completion in our lives. 
Again, flashback to chapters 1 to 3. Uh, Paul had declared his desire to meet these people in person. I find it wonderful in God's providence that he was withheld from that. Well, how come? Because you and I were given that letter. Paul couldn't have known what God was going to do with that letter down the road, but God knew that. And here Paul's saying, I wanted to go and I wanted to go, but I was, I was prevented. And I look at that and I say, thank God he was prevented because he picked up his pen. And he wrote this incredible letter. And he says there at the early part of chapter 1 that he's ready to preach the gospel not only to Jews and the Greeks and barbarians, but to them, to the Roman Christians also. And what that shows, it ought to be our desire to know the gospel not just as the ABCs, but to gain a deeper understanding of what took place on that cross. I mean, this was written to Christian people to be read in their gatherings on the Lord's Day. The gospel message begins with the righteousness of God as the Creator set in stark contrast to the willful, stubborn rebellion of depraved creatures and the wrath of God that's being currently poured out in response. And of course, He brings all of humanity under condemnation so that the righteousness of God can be freely given in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and that God pardons guilty sinners. This is huge and perfectly retains His justice. Too often the Gospel is taught in terms of mercy alone. That is a grave mistake. If your understanding of the Gospel is God just felt bad and so He waved the wand of forgiveness, you're missing something. God has to keep His character. God has to uphold His justice. God cannot just throw away condemnation when it's justly earned. So, Jesus goes to the cross as God in the flesh to uphold the righteousness and the holy character of God, to fulfill the law, and to take the wrath justly aimed at you and I. So that God becomes just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Chapter 4, the question arises, what about those in Old Testament times? I cringe when I hear somebody say people were saved by works in the Old Testament, and I wonder what Bible they're reading. One sin made Adam and Eve fit for eternal destruction. And so, when presented with that hypothetical question, Paul goes right to the apex of the discussion with the man Abraham, the bright star in the Jewish sky, and their great King David. And he shows that both of those men had to be saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, before He ever came. So their faith was in the plan of God to redeem them. But these men understood they could not save themselves. They understood the innocent had to die for the guilty, and they looked forward to the same cross that you and I look back to. But salvation has always been by grace through faith. Having settled that, the discussion moves beyond justification into sanctification, Christian growth. And God doesn't save you and I to stagnate. He is not content to leave us in spiritual infancy. So chapter 5 takes up the topic of headship. You're either in Christ 
or you are in Adam. You are, you are sitting here this morning in one of those two. There is no in-between. And then we get to chapter 6. The key word is sin. And the central question is, how can I stop committing evil in spite of the presence of a sin nature? Chapter 7, the battle's even more intense and very personal for Paul himself. The key word in chapter 7 is law. presents a higher problem. How can I do good? Considering this shocking, wicked, perverse nature that still exists undiminished and unsanctified within me. And intermingled through all of that has been several positional truths such as we have peace with God, Romans 5. By the way, that, that, that's not asking your opinion, nor is it talking about a subjective feeling. There's the peace of God, there's the peace with God. The peace of God is your sense of it. Peace with God is your settled position that you now dwell, if you're a believer, under friendly skies. God's wrath is eternally satisfied that we stand in grace and have continual access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. That we are in Christ, not Adam. That we are dead to sin. That we are dead to the law or law principle. Now last time we ended the end of Romans 7, which again paints a very blunt yet vital picture of the nature that we still possess as believers. And Paul relates this extreme conflict within and how he desired to do good, but somehow couldn't find the power to carry it out. And may I say this is one area that ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance of what God declares about the nature we still have is not bliss. It's bondage. Our sin nature passes into the Christian life undiminished in power and influence. It's been positionally slaughtered. But functionally, it's still alive and well. Again, it can appear dormant for a time and then spring up in fury when provoked. It can actually cause us to sin more as a result of hearing the Word of God. It cannot be subject to the law of God, ever. The sin nature can't be sanctified or defanged. It can only be repudiated in the power of the Spirit. And of course, the crux of that is Paul cries out, when I would do good, evil is present with me. But I hope you recall, he goes from verse 18, how... How do I do good? How do I perform it? He goes from that to who in verse 24. Just like you and I were unable to save ourselves. You think back to, you may not have thought about it in these terms, but when you were a lost, condemned rebel, God had to take you from how to who. He had to take you from how can I fix myself? How can I escape the judgment of God? How can I change my life? How can I transform this heart of mine to who? Who can give me a new heart? Who can give me His own righteousness? Who can take away this start of heart of stone and, and give me a heart of flesh? And in a sense, it's true regarding sanctification that as we grow, this bitter struggle of how begins to yield to who? And it's this bitter internal struggle and the humbling realization that we are still no good and that we have no power in and of ourselves as Christians. 
is what opens the gateway into the glories of chapter 8. I want to just point out before going forward, this is interesting theology. Important stuff. Walking through Romans, I think it's helpful to notice the emphasis on the three members of the Trinity and where that occurs. And the introductory verses, we're not going to turn there, but you can look at it yourself. The first four verses, you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all mentioned. But once Paul begins this treatise on the contents of the Gospels, in, in cha- in the, of the Gospel, in chapters 1 to 3, God the Father is mentioned about 50 times. And none of the others are mentioned until chapter 3, verse 21, when it's transitioning from man's depravity to the free righteousness given through Christ. So you have the first two and a half chapters, it's all God the Father. Chapter 4, of course, is that discourse on salvation in the Old Testament, and that would have been a very pertinent question to a Jew especially. But from the end of chapter 4 through chapter 6, it's the Son that takes center stage. We have peace with God through and access to grace through Him. God displayed His love in the greatest fashion through Him. We are saved from wrath through Him. He is the channel through which the grace of God is dispensed. We are under His headship. We are in Christ. We were baptized unto His death, crucified with Him, raised with Him, and alive through Him. In chapter 7, there's hardly a mention of any of them. Because... It's self-effort at sanctification, which ends at a horrible crisis of the rotting, decaying corpse stuck to his back as he's flailing around in misery. And then you get into chapter 8. What's the key word there? Spirit. So far in the book, the Holy Spirit's only been mentioned in the introduction and a passing reference in chapter 5, verse 5. And all of a sudden in this chapter, he's suddenly mentioned 20 times in the first 27 verses. That in itself is highly instructive. There's a lot of tragedies of bad pneumatology. That's bad doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Some of the modern day groups, charismatics and others, are horribly wrong in some of their doctrinal positions. But what that's unfortunately caused is a backlash reaction from some more conservative groups to almost forget the Holy Spirit exists. Let's say I did a pop quiz and I passed out three pieces of paper to each of you and I said, all right, write down everything you know about God the Father. And write down everything you know about God the Son. Now write down everything you know about the Holy Spirit. Maybe. I don't know that for sure. Now we have to be careful because as a side note, let me say this. The Holy Spirit does not shine a light on Himself. He's fully God, but His ministry is shining the spotlight on Christ. When a group gets into, we're going to worship directly the Holy Spirit, and we're, all we're going to talk about is Spirit, 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 mark it down, they're off course. That's another discussion. But, at the same time, He is God. 
He is a member of the triune Godhead. He is emphasized heavily here in Romans 8. I mean, there's no question the Holy Spirit plays a massive role in illuminating the lost and bringing them to salvation and in the work of regeneration, bringing them to Christ, giving them a new heart. But a person can be largely ignorant of the Holy Spirit's role and still be convicted of sin. I've never dealt with anybody that I can remember who was at the point of salvation who right afterwards went off on a doctrinal tangent about the Holy Spirit's role in the whole thing. No, they're looking at Christ. Later on they learn that the Spirit of God was moving and drawing and illuminating. So they can be largely ignorant of that and still come to Christ. But when it comes to our sanctification... We can't remain in ignorance about the person and work of the Holy Spirit and grow to maturity. His work is vital in this discussion. And a discussion on Him specifically has been withheld for a reason. Haven't you found sometimes in life the best way for you to learn a lesson is beating your head against a wall the wrong way for a bit? I'm not saying that's the most fun way to learn something, but I'm saying it's sure effective. Well, Paul comes to that crisis, and now it opens this gateway. And if, uh, if you know anything about that crisis at all, you're ready to walk through the gateway. I mean, you think, which member of the Trinity is set forth as the object of faith? Well, in salvation, it's primarily the Father and the Son. But when it comes to the deeper truths of the awareness and the power of the Holy Spirit within the Christian, it's there that understanding and learning a dependence upon the third person of the Trinity indwelling you by faith is brought into view. So it's no surprise that after Romans 7, a lengthy discussion regarding the Holy Spirit is what comes next. And a lot of what's said here Again, we're just going to touch on, but a lot of the topics in this book warrant further study, each of their own. They could each be a sermon in and of themselves, and the rest of the New Testament develops them more. But let me just list some of them. Walking in the Spirit. Spiritual mindedness. The indwelling of the Spirit. The resurrection power of the Spirit. The mortification of the deeds of the body through the Spirit. The leading of the Spirit, the adoption of the Spirit, the inner witness of the Spirit. And what exactly is that? The intercession of the Spirit of God on our behalf. All those are uh, introduced here. So let's just do a brief outline of the chapter and we will be done. The first 27 verses are taken up with the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of the believer. You can kind of divide it into these sections. And verses 28 to 39 give the real basis of our assurance. The real basis of biblical boldness. Alright, verse 1, you'll notice, begins with what a glorious phrase. There is therefore now no condemnation Condemnation is God's death sentence. 
It's the eternal axe falling from heaven to sentence guilty rebels to the lake of fire. Now, why would that be mentioned here when this has already been dealt with back in chapters 3 and 4? Well, I'm going to give you why I think it's here. You remember that former crisis at the end of Romans 7? What is it that will plague your mind in those moments? I am so shockingly wretched. If God wasn't disgusted with me back then, He must be now. There's got to be some skeleton tumbling out of the closet here. But let me remind you of what's happening from God's side. God isn't learning anything new about you. For your own good, God is revealing more about you to you. You see, you're having this Romans 7 crisis and God's not having the same crisis. God's not going, I cannot believe I saved that person. What an embarrassment to my name. What was I thinking? And in those moments, we need to be reminded there is no condemnation. And the way it's a phrase, there's not one single condemnation. Not one hair of your head can go to hell. Not one part of your corporeal being, not one molecule of you can face God's wrath. And of course, he describes that by saying to them that are in Christ. Why is that important? If you are a believer, the only way for you to suffer God's wrath is if Christ is thrown into hell. And that's not happening. May I remind you, he's seated in the heavenlies and he's not going anywhere until he returns to this earth and says, mine, 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 mine. And no one's removing him from that throne. And he says that those that are in Christ walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, it's not talking about some kind of perfectionism, but it's saying they're on the pathway of learning to reject the flesh. You know, uh, the fact that there's a war is actually great proof that you belong to Him. If you've been walking with God for a while, you know he will not leave you alone in sin very long. Oh, he'll give you leeway. But you can't stay there, can you? Your soul can't tolerate it. The discipline comes, and the lack of joy comes. And some point or another, you say, along with the prodigal, I'm going to get out of this pig pen, and I will arise and go to my father. That's evidence that He is in you. In verses 2-4, to the reason there is no condemnation is that the principle of life given through Christ, that's what it means, the law of life in Christ Jesus. It's not talking about some kind of mosaic law code. It's saying the principle, the life given through Christ, 
has broken the chains of the dominion of sin and death, spiritual and physical death both, and He tasted death for every man. Now the law couldn't produce righteousness in you and I because of the weakness of sinful humanity. There was nothing wrong with the law. So God sent His Son in a body of flesh to condemn sin, to break its dominion so that the character of the law could be fulfilled in our daily lives. And this is increasingly accomplished as we learn dependence by faith on the third person of the Trinity. And of course, that says without saying, we better devour the Scriptures because that's the only way you're going to walk in the Spirit is by knowing His mind through His Word. In verses 5-10, to 10, you have this contrast between those that are spiritually minded and those that are carnally minded. And uh, once again, the question comes up, is this talking about two kinds of Christian or uh, somebody who's saved and lost? I think an application can be made to a believer who's struggling, but I don't think there's any question as talking about a lost person. It's contrasting them. Why? They're called after the flesh, carnally minded or non-spiritual. They're at enmity with God. They're not subject and they can't be. They're dominated by their fallen nature. The same fallen nature that you and I as believers still possess. And in that state, they cannot please God. Look at verse 8. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. What a realization for an unsafe person when they understand their life the way God sees it, at least to a point, and they go from saying, yeah, I'm not perfect, but, to understanding they've never done a single thing that pleases God. What a realization. Look at verse 9, though. <clears throat> but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, we know from other passages, the Spirit comes up as a permanent and dwells as a permanent residence. He's not going anywhere. So a believer is said to be in the Spirit, not in the flesh. I used to say it in my early days. I didn't know any better. I realize how wrong it is now. You would do something less than spiritually intelligent or have an attitude that was ungodly, and you'd say, oh, I'm sorry, brother, I was in the flesh. No, I actually was not in the flesh because a believer can't be in the flesh. A believer can yield to the flesh, but that's not their standing. But conversely, if you are in Christ, listen to me carefully, if you are a saved person, you can have life and peace. You can be subject to God. You can Please Him. Because of what He's done through Christ. Verse 11 and 12, If the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, if you're a saved person this morning, the day's coming when He's going to raise this mortal fallen body of yours, just like He did with Christ. What's our response to that? Because of that fact, you can look in the mirror at this decaying body of yours and say, you 
you are going to be made in perfection someday. What a glorious thing. What's our response? Therefore, brethren, verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. We should view our lives, view ourselves as owing something, not to the flesh, not to the world. It has no dominion, no claim, no authority, but unto God. When I say that, I don't mean some kind of merit system. I'm trying to earn something so God can give it to me. No, God's already given it without you earning anything. But the idea is, because He's redeemed me, how can I rationally look at my life as my own? Verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. It talks about the leading of the Spirit. Those that are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Now, I'm just going to say this without getting into great detail. It's not so much talking about some kind of self-examination to tell if I was really led by the Spirit today. Let's see, on Saturday when I went to Steve's Cafe instead of Early Bird, am I sure God led me there? It's more telling us. It's God's constant disposition. It's God's constant nature to lead His children. There's never a time God is not leading you. Now, you may be less aware of it. You might be stubborn and buck the system. But I'm convinced for every one way you see God leading you, there's a thousand you don't. Think of how many circumstances affect just one day of yours. How many could you list? And all of those circumstances, the circumstances that had to happen before to bring those to pass. In everybody's life, you run across. And then you begin to think not one of those is by accident or happenstance. And then you barely begin to get a picture of how fully and completely God leads. So it's trusting His ability to lead more than my ability to hear. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to hear the Lord's, or understand the Lord's direction, Romans 12. But He's always leading. Verses 15 to 17, what a glorious truth here. Uh, we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption. So he says, God didn't take you into his family to hold over you some sort of threat. You better toe the line or else. You know, I'm just not sure I should have done that. I'm still thinking things over. That's, that's the spirit of bondage. That produces terror and uncertainty. Fear of abandonment. Fear that some skeleton's going to come tumbling out of the closet and make him storm off from me. And he says, no, that's, that's not what you've been given, but you've been given the spirit of adoption. God picked you with full disclosure. I'm reminded of the story of the schoolboy that was adopted. You know how kids can be cruel. 
The other kids found out he was adopted and they began to make fun of him. That's not your real dad. You don't even know who your family is. The kid's distressed, so he goes to talk to his adopted father and his father says, well, here's how you can answer that. So he goes to school the next day and the kids start making fun of him. He said, let me tell you something. My dad walked into that orphanage and out of all the hundreds of kids there, he picked me. Your parents are just stuck with you. (laughs) Adoption. He picked you. Can't explain why. But it's a permanent thing. Verse 19 to 25, for the present time, all of the creation is groaning and travailing, waiting for the day of redemption when God sets the record straight. And it's not just the creation, but it's us as well. If you've been given the first fruits of the Spirit, verse 23, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. You know what it means to groan? (laughs) Think of all the reasons you groan. Some of it can just be physical, aging. Ibuprofen becomes a staple food group. Physical ailments come. You can groan over spiritual things. It's a... You know, I, uh, I'm still not that old. I tell you, when I was newly saved, I didn't really get the sentiment by experience, I can't wait to depart the world. And you young people that are here, that's okay. In fact, if some of you were sitting here saying, I can't wait to die, I would maybe counsel you differently. <laughs> Jay Vernon McGee mentioned this story. Some of you probably heard that. It cracks me up. You know, here's this preacher saying, and it's a black church, so it's, you know, real, real vibrant... Who wants to go to heaven? And people are going, amen. And who wants to go to heaven? And, and there's this little boy in the front that's just sitting there. And he goes, he says, little boy, don't you want to go to heaven? He goes, yeah, but I thought you were collecting a group for this morning. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I can tell you, I think honestly, my main reasons for wanting to stay here are ministering to my family and the Lord's people. And I want to go. This is a filthy place. I don't know how many liquor bottles I pick up. And the first thing I did getting here today was throw away another whiskey bottle. People love to throw them around here. And just this week, I get an email from somebody. Hey, we have some questions about the church. Can you give us a call? We're really interested in starting to attend church. and Call them back. It's some pornographic, filthy trash. It's a filthy world. Disgusting world. We groan within ourselves, don't we? But the glory is, the groaning's heading for something. It has a fulfillment. Verse 26 and 27 Another vital ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that's one of intercessor. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. 
For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He groans too. And He groans right along with you in your infirmity. And He takes our pathetic, disjointed prayers and He straightens them out for us. And you get in your dark night of soul and your oh-so-eloquent prayers get reduced to one word and a whole lot of tears. We behold the third person of the Trinity. He's taking those heart groans. He's making intercession for us according to the will of God. And then in the second section, the last verses, there's this victory song of assurance. Most Christians know verse 28. All things work together for good. I dare say sometimes that's misused because people don't know what else to say. I think it's tragic that many times people don't know the verses following it because that's the whole flow of thoughts important. We know all things work together for good. Well, how do we know? What does it mean to be the called according to His purpose? Well, that's answered in the following verses. What's God's central purpose for you? It, it crystallizes into one thing. To conform you to the image of Christ, that's God's definition of good. You and I look and say, well, that wasn't very good. It's because we don't have the vantage point. I guarantee you the very trials that are so difficult for us that God sends, if we had His wisdom, we would ask Him for those things. So God's purpose in us is to conform us to the image of Christ. And the reason you can be sure He's going to accomplish it is because the entire process from beginning to end is His work. And that's the chain of events in verses 28 to 30. How do we know that, Paul? For, because, whom He did foreknow. Without getting into great detail, foreknowledge is not just omniscience. Foreknowledge is not just saying God knows everything beforehand. You can trace this concept through the Scriptures. Foreknowledge is an intimate identifying knowledge. For instance, when God says to one of His servants, you only have I known, He said that to the nation Israel. Does that mean He wasn't aware of other nations? He forgot they existed? No. It's saying you, I've had this identifying intimate knowledge of. So the content of that's not revealed to us in the Scriptures. That door is shut. We don't know. But if you are a believer, God knew you. Intimate, identifying knowledge from eternity past. And everyone that He foreknew, it says He predestinates, praerizo, marked off horizons. Ever since you were born, there were certain horizons in your life that have been marked off to make sure you come to an expected end. And again, we're not doing away with free will. This is an antinomy, but this passage teaches God's sight of it, which gives us great boldness in this process. So He foreknew an intimate identifying knowledge, and then those He predestinated marked off their horizons. And then the day came they were called. There was an effectual calling where they came out of the spiritual death of the grave, and they trusted Christ 
And He justified them. He took away their sins. He declared them righteous. And then it says, He glorified. That's Glorification is still future for you and I. But it's mentioned as past tense because in God's mind, it's as good as done. That whole process, foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, glorified, is all God's work. So the whole point of Romans 28 is robbed if verses 29 and 30 are just thrown out. How do I know all things work together for good? Because I am His workmanship start to finish. God's not in the business of doing things halfway. By the way, the proper place of election is not snooty arguments, blog posts that are nasty. It's precious truth that belongs to the Christian that ought to cause worship and joy. I mean, if God chose me and the whole process is of Him, what do I have to fear? And out from that comes these five major questions that I dare say it's hard to come up with a fear that you and I have that doesn't fit in one of these five questions. Verses 31 to 35. What shall we then say to these things? All right, what's, what's my reaction to that? What is it you and I fear? How about opposition? All the legions of things against you. People, movements, governments, demons your own flesh? How can I stand against all of that? You've got to be kidding me. If God be for us, who can be against us? If the one who's omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent has already redeemed your soul from destruction permanently and placed His name on you, who can stand against you that really matters? What else do we fear? How about a lack of provision? Will God really give me what I need? Look at the logic in verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. In other words, if God gave the best first, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How could God give Christ to you? and then not give you lesser things that you need. That doesn't make any sense either. Verse 33, we fear accusation. What about when people accuse me of stuff? Hey, what about when it's true? Mm. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's not that we don't have sin pointed out. We do, but I think the idea is more, who's going to accuse me of something that's going to make God change His opinion of me? Who's going to lay something to my charge that's going to stick and make God turn cold? He says, it's God that justifieth. If God Himself declared you righteous, who in this universe would dare stand up and say you're not? Huh. 
There's one opinion that matters on that day. What else do we fear? Verse 34. How about condemnation? There it is again. Yeah, but I am so wretched. Who is he that condemneth? Friends, who's on that great white throne? It's Christ. It's Christ. You can compare John 5. It's unmistakable. So he says, who is he that condemneth? Friends, if that judge that's seated on that throne has already borne all of hell for you, how can you ever end up under God's wrath? Not only has He justified you, but He's also making intercession for you right now. And then lastly, yeah, but does God really love me? Verse 25, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then again, he gives this lengthy description of things possibly that could cause us to think that God's affection changes and he reminds us it can't and it won't. God will never love you more than he does and he cannot love you less than he does. His love is infinite, placed on you from eternity past, and it's as constant and full as he is. You see, there's two kinds of people under the clouds on a cloudy day. There's those that think the sunshine's gone forever. And there's those that calmly understand that it's still up above shining down and it's going to come out again. And that's what gave Paul such a holy boldness and absence of fear. I mean, he could see right past circumstances, setbacks, appearances, seeming impossibilities, difficulties, pain, suffering, heartache, legions of demons and demonic people set against him, and he'd allowed himself to be persuaded to set his faith upon the position given him in Christ and to see beyond this barren land unto the hills from which, whence my salvation cometh. That... That is where we'll find the same assurance. It's not in your performance, how much you did for God. Don't get me wrong, those things can bring joy. Those things are good. But they can never be the basis of real confidence. Because it's been purchased start to finish. And you were chosen in eternity past by God Himself. Now, these are truths we always need. But maybe more in the days ahead. Maybe more so than ever in American history. I don't know what's coming. I'm no prophet. But I want to challenge you if you are in Romans 7 somewhere experientially, press on into Romans 8. It's not going to happen overnight. But keep pressing on. Keep pressing on. For every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the assurance You give us in Your Word and that You give us solid foundation. Thank You You don't give half-baked gifts. You don't give just partial truth and partial help. You don't just love us some. Your mercy is infinite. Your grace is infinite. Your love is infinite and unending and unchangeable.
Help us to glory in that in these days of darkness that our feet are set upon a rock. Even when we don't feel it, we don't see it, we don't think it, we can know it. In Jesus' name, Amen.